Okay, friends, we have arrived at the last Sunday of 2023. It's actually the last day of the year, which means this is the last sermon you were ever going to hear in the year 2023. That's pretty wild. We've made it. Well done. Congratulations. You survived 2023. It was a little bit of a roller coaster. Uh, Hopefully, our prayer, my family's prayer for 2024 is uh, the word consistency is a theme for our prayer for the, for the year 2024. We just, want some, we just want some consistency in 2024. Anybody else relate to that? Uh, well, I think that, and I hope that uh, today's message will help us to see some ways that we can play our part in positioning ourselves to, to see everything that God would want to do in our lives in 2024, whether you're praying for consistency or breakthrough or miracles. I think certainly we want to pray for all of these things. And I think that as we take another step in our journey through the gospel of Luke, my hope today is to offer you an opportunity through this passage to reflect on the year 2023 and also to give you some inspiration for some of your spiritual growth in the coming year. Whatever it is you're asking God for, whatever it is you're hoping that God does in the next year, Hopefully today's message and this passage from Luke will inspire us. Now, Luke is about, in, in chapter 3, <clears throat> Luke is about to shift the, the corner and turn into the adult life and ministry of Jesus uh, in, in the story that he's telling. But before he does that, after all of the nativity story, the birth of Jesus, all of the things we've been talking about for several weeks, Luke pauses here to tell us something about the childhood of Jesus. Luke actually tells this story through the lens of six characters. Technically, it's seven. It's seven individuals that we're going to talk about. Uh, but seven points is just way too many. And so we're going to, for our purposes today, we're going we're gonna to marry the married people together. So uh, Joseph and Mary are going to serve as one character in our story. So six characters today uh, that will help us get to where we want to go to learn what we want to learn or what I think uh, Dr. Luke wants us to learn today. Uh, today from this passage of scripture, I I want us to consider how the way Luke tells the story about Jesus' childhood serves as a picture for our spirituality or our spiritual formation. And each character, each of the six characters we'll look at over the next few minutes, will show us one element of what healthy spirituality actually looks like and then taken all together we can actually see a model for a holistic spiritual formation. And so my goal today is to pause at each of these characters and see what they teach us about what spiritual formation looks like in our lives. And for clarity, when I use this term spiritual formation, this is what spiritual formation is. It is the lifelong spirit-led process of being molded into the image of Christ in order to increasingly love God and neighbor. So when I say spiritual formation, this is what I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit leading you for your entire life in a process of looking more and more like God over time. And as you look more and more like God over time, you're able to love him more fully and you're also able to love your neighbor as well which for the record is the great commandment that Jesus gives to us is to love God with all of ourselves, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so as we examine each character in this portion of Luke's telling of the story of Jesus's life, specifically his childhood, I want you to think about which of these characters stand out to you. 
Who do you relate to? Which one of these characters, or maybe it's several of them, feels like an invitation or a challenge to your own spiritual development? And then before we wrap up today, I'm going to invite you to tell a neighbor which of these characters might serve as an example for you as you move into the new year? In other words, which one of these characters feels like the kind of person you would like to model your spiritual formation after as you move into the new year? So we're going to jump right in. We're going to begin with this young couple that is tasked to raise the Savior of the world. You know, an easy job. Joseph and Mary are our first character of the day, and we begin this portion of Luke's story in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. We'll pause after verse 24 and see what we can learn from Joseph and Mary. These are the young people that I'm referring to today as the faithfully religious. Now, Luke 2, 21 through 24 says this, When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem. They, there is Joseph and Mary, his mom and dad, his parents. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, we could take a lot of time digging into all of the meaning of all of the different things that Luke has just said there, remembering that Luke gives us specific detail. But I want you to notice what Luke does here just in as a theme and the way he talks about what is happening. He's telling us what they did, but he's also giving us an insight into why they did it. They named Jesus on the eighth day after he was born. They circumcised him on the eighth day after he was born. They brought him to the temple uh, uh, after the time of purification, uh, which, which all of this shows us this picture. And we'll talk about the details just briefly in a second. But Mary and Joseph, Luke is trying to communicate to us that they were a faithfully religious Jewish couple. That they weren't just flying by the seat of their pants, just making it up as they went. That they were faithfully religious to the Jewish law and culture and custom and tradition. So when they had their firstborn son, their first baby, they did what a faithfully religious Jewish couple were instructed to do. Jewish law told them that they would name the child on the eighth day. And if that child was a male, he would be circumcised according to the law of God in the old covenant. And then also, after the time of purification, which we now, we, we would know this, and of course Mary and Joseph knew this, is that that was 40 days. In those days, and under, according to the old covenant law, if a woman had given birth, she was considered unclean for 40 days. And so after the 40 days were over, they then were, she was able to go into the temple. She couldn't go and be in the presence of, uh, of the priest who would, uh, as, as Jesus would be dedicated to the Lord until after that time had been completed. And so once she was able to uh, go into the temple again, they brought Jesus into the temple to be dedicated to the Lord, which was the tradition. Now, it, it was customary and, and expected of Jewish families to dedicate the firstborn son to the service of the Lord. And so they were doing all of the things that, uh, that they were expected to do as faithfully religious Jewish 
people. Now, I want you to hear this. Joseph and Mary were not actually required to go to Jerusalem in order for Jesus to be dedicated, but I think the fact that they did actually speaks more to their faithfulness. They could have just found a priest in the local synagogue, but I have a feeling that Joseph and Mary sat around and said, we could just go find, you know, the local rabbi at the local synagogue, but we're not just dedicating somebody's firstborn son. We're dedicating the Messiah. So I think that they measured what they were dealing with here, and they said, we're taking this kid to the temple in the holy city of God. And so that's why they went to Jerusalem, or at least it's believed that that is the, what would have led them to make that decision. And so they knew that this firstborn son was special. And again, all of this points to their understanding of what it meant to be faithfully religious Jewish people. So Joseph and Mary, they model for us a faithfully religious spirituality. And in our modern world, where we're often tempted to just discard all spiritual tradition, and, and we sort of think that like we're the, we're the chosen people of God. Everybody else before us didn't have it quite as figured out as we do, and we just need to know Jesus, and if we just know Jesus, and that's enough, and, and we just throw out all of these empty traditions because we don't want to be religious people. We want to have a relationship with Jesus. I'm using quotey fingers because I'm sort of mocking the idea I don't know if you noticed that. Look, I just want you to know, you got in this room because of religion. <laughs> like, it's a religious practice that you showed up today. So if you think that, like, we're just not the people who have figured it out, that we don't have to do religious practice in order for our spirituality, Joseph and Mary actually show us that your religious practice, your tradition and the rhythm and, and the, the, the ancient practices are good for us. I would just propose to you that if Joseph and Mary raising God figured that religious tradition was good enough, then we probably need it, right? So the religious traditions, they breathe life into us. They remind us that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And, and they each, in, in all of the traditions that we practice, like for example, fasting and prayer, they are ancient traditions that have been practiced by the people of God for generation and generation and generation. But they're also fresh and deeply meaningful and life-giving for us today as we move into a brand new year that no one has ever lived in. So they're wildly important for us to be faithfully religious too. And so Joseph and Mary teach us that spiritual formation happens as we are faithful to the practices that bring us into God's presence and form us into his image. You are invited in your holistic spiritual formation to practice those things that bring you into God's presence and form you into, who, into his image. And so there you go. You've now seen the model for this is, this is how we're going to do the rest of the day this morning. Uh, some of these will go quicker than that, and we'll slow down a little bit more for at least one of them. But let's talk about our next character this morning. His name is Simeon. I'll just read you quickly Simeon's story. Simeon, the one that I'm calling the hopeful. Starting in verse 25, it says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. 
Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought, that's Joseph and Mary, brought the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may have been revealed. Now, again, we could say a million different things about this little passage. I just want you to focus on the, on the character Simeon. Luke tells us almost nothing about this person. We assume that he was an old person uh, because he seems like he was ready to be not alive anymore. Um, There's no good way to say that, is there? Uh, But the assumption historically has been that he's old. Luke doesn't tell us how old he is. We we also have no clue as to his work. Some people assume that he was a priest or or a rabbi, that he was uh, had some sort of authority in the temple because he seemed to have had the the kind of uh, social clout to just go and like grab a young couple's baby and just talk to him, you know. Uh, But we're not sure, and and there's really nothing here that says that that Simeon was. A priest. In fact, he almost certainly was not a priest because knowing Dr. Luke, the detail guy, he probably would have told us that he was a priest. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit later why I think he wasn't a priest. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit later on in the message. But, but by all accounts, Simeon was probably just a guy. He was just a normal dude who honored the Lord. But what makes Simeon stand out is not who he was or what he did, what makes him stand out is the way that Luke tells us how he carried what he had heard from God. So Simeon hears God tell him, you will not die until you see the Lord's Messiah. And Simeon believed God. And then you know what Simeon did? He lived. He just lived. He just kept on living. We don't know how many years it was. It could have been 40 years from the day that Simeon heard God say, you won't die, or it could have been literally the day before. We have no clue. All we know is that God told Simeon, you will not die until you see the Lord's Messiah, and Simeon clearly believed God. So Simeon models for us what it looks like to have a hopeful spirituality. Now, hope is often defined as confident expectation. Hopeful is not wishful. It's confidently expecting that God will do the thing that he said that he would do. Again, we have no idea how long Simeon held on to this promise that God had given him. All we know that was in the waiting, Simeon hoped. He confidently expected that God would keep his word. What is it about the story that tells us that he had hope? Because when the Spirit guided him to go into the temple that day, what did Simeon do? He went. If he was a man without hope, he would have no reason to get up and go into the temple when we have no idea how many other days he had gone into the temple and just stood around looking going, is that him? 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 Oh, 
Day's over. Okay, I'll come back tomorrow. We have no idea if he had done that every day, every day since he had heard the word. Or if he had never been into the temple since he had heard the word of the Lord and just went when the Holy Spirit led him. What we know is he had hope, and his hope, the Holy Spirit gave him the word to go, but his hope is what sustained him until he heard the word to go. It guided him up until that day. The author of Hebrews challenges us to hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. Or Eugene Peterson in the message puts it this way, let's keep a firm grip on the promises that keep us going. He always keeps his word. So much of our spiritual life feels like waiting, doesn't it? I just heard a book that I want to read in in 2024 that talks specifically about the 30 years of ambiguity that Jesus spent when no one knew who he was publicly, when he didn't begin his ministry, and that there's something to be learned about the waiting period uh, in our spirituality. But doesn't it kind of feel like that? Like God gave you some sort of a promise, God said he's going to do something amazing, and then you just wait, just kind of hold on. Doesn't it sort of feel sometimes like you read the Bible and we're just going from miracle to miracle to miracle to miracle and you can read all of an entire gospel account in not too long of a period of time and how quickly we forget that that's actually a three-year span of life? How many boring days did the disciples have? And it would have been Peter... None of the gospel authors recorded, but it totally would have been Peter who would have looked at John and been like, is anything exciting going to happen again? (laughs) We have no idea. But Simeon is the one who reminds us that there is something powerful about waiting as a person of hope. In fact, Simeon teaches us that spiritual formation happens in the hope-filled waiting to see God keep his word. That there's actually something beautiful and spiritual and purposeful and intentional and good for you in the waiting. Because not everything about your spirituality is all up into the right prophetic, dynamic, miraculous breakthrough. Most of it, actually. Most of your spirituality is waiting. Most of it is. Even that baby knows what I'm talking about. All right, so... Speaking of the dynamic moments, let's talk about Anna. Anna is the one that I'm calling the grounded charismatic. We'll start in verse 36. It says, there was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years. Now, Luke actually does begin to give us an idea. This person was actually elderly. Having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years, she did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and speak to him about all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna is another person that we know very little about, although I think we actually could uh, insinuate and and, and learn a little bit more than even Simeon. Uh, Here's what we know about Anna. Anna was elderly. Depending on how you look at Luke's description, some people believe she was 84 years old. Some people believe she was 104 years old. So she was somewhere in that window. She was elderly. Here's the second thing that we know about, about Anna. She was Phineal's daughter, Phenuel was of the tribe of Asher. Asher is one of the the lost tribes. 
If you study Old Testament history, you understand what I mean by that. It's possible that Luke includes this little detail that she's of the tribe of Asher to communicate that what was lost in the process of time through the presence of Jesus gets married back into the people of God, which is a beautiful little detail if Luke intended that for us. But at the very least, he would include this to let us know that Anna was a Jewish woman a daughter of God's people who comes declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. So at the very least, this is significant, that she was a Jewish woman called a prophetess. Another thing we know about about Anna, she was briefly married, only for seven years. She most likely did not have children. And she most likely lived on the temple grounds or very near the temple grounds. Says she never left. She was either there or right next to the temple grounds for all of these years. And then, of course, another thing that Luke tells us is that she was a prophet or a prophetess, meaning that she ministered in the spiritual gift of prophecy by the Holy Spirit, but also meaning that she was recognized as holding the office or position of the prophet by all of the other people. This is important. I think that there's a surprising amount that we could say about Anna. Like, we could just do a whole sermon just about Anna. Well, let me just give you a couple of examples of things we could get into about Anna, uh, that, that Anna teaches us. Number one, it's an interesting little detail that God was apparently not completely silent during the 400-year intertestamental period. A couple of weeks ago, I had told you there was this 400-year period from Micah to Matthew where it said that there was no significant new prophecy given to God's people. Anna actually tells us that God was speaking to the people prophetically during those 400 years. Otherwise, everyone would have said, Anna, she calls herself a prophetess, but we all know God doesn't speak anymore. Anna's crazy. But they didn't say that. She was recognized as a prophet. So simply by calling Anna a prophetess, Luke implies the presence and practice of multiple prophets. That's interesting. Another thing that we can learn from Anna being told about in this story is that women were not excluded from holding the office of prophet. If women were never allowed to teach or say anything on behalf of God, then surely they would not have been allowed to speak on God's behalf, and they certainly would never have been referred to as a prophet. So ladies, you're hired. A third thing that we can learn here from Anna is that Anna actually represents the other half of a role that Simeon has already played in this story. You see, Simeon is a male witness of Jesus being the Messiah. Anna comes as a female witness to Jesus being the Messiah. Together, Luke paints a picture of all humankind bearing witness to the divinity of Jesus as the Messiah. It's a pretty good picture. Luke, you got to pay attention to the details if you're going to read Luke. Men and women, women holding positions of power, very interesting. Anna serves, I think, also as a model for a grounded yet dynamic spirituality. And here's ultimately the point. We'll try to run through this relatively quickly, but I don't want you to miss it. Anna functioned in the spiritual gift of prophecy, so much so that she was recognized as a prophetess, and she may have even had lodging in the temple. So she was a known person. People didn't think she was a weirdo when she comes up and starts prophesying, okay? Luke describes Anna as also a highly disciplined person. She's always in the temple every day. And what was she doing while she's in the temple? Fasting and praying. So Anna was wildly charismatic. 
Come on, Pentecostal people. She was wildly Pentecostal. Pre-Pentecostal, Pentecostal. You work that out. It's a different sermon. But she was also grounded. She was, she was rooted. She was disciplined. And her practice of discipline and fast is what I believe would have validated her prophetic ministry. This person speaks on behalf of God, and she's not a kookaboo. She, she's not pay, Luke does not paint her as a flighty woman who, who like just kind of appears on the scene like, like the weird teacher from Harry Potter and, and just like says a thing and then like vanishes. No, she was faithfully on the temple grounds every day practicing spiritual disciplines to such a degree that Luke knew about it enough that he could write it down in the description of who she was as a person. She was wildly disciplined. And out of that discipline, she then prophesied. This is important for our spirituality. You see, Anna actually teaches us that spiritual formation as we, happens as we engage spiritual gifts that result in the worship of Jesus. And you don't actually practice spiritual gifts and, and, and the, the radical stuff in ways that result in the worship of Jesus unless you intimately know Jesus. What happens to the spiritually gifted practitioners that don't practice spiritual disciplines is that they end up using all of the things like prophecy to draw attention to themselves because they're the only person they know. But if you practice spiritual disciplines to get to know Jesus and be formed more and more into his image, when God uses you to minister in power, you point to the person you know better than yourself. This is, this is why Anna is a beautiful picture. I really don't have time to dig into this even more. But I, I just really hope that in our Pentecostal church that we don't lose the power of the Holy Spirit moving in dynamic ways. God is still speaking and he's still healing people. He's still doing miracles. Amen? Amen. But we cannot just run to the fire without knowing the God who keeps us from being burned alive by it. Thank you, Anna, for teaching us that lesson. Okay, now, for sake of time, because I'd like to end this sermon before next year, Luke jumps years into the future, and we're actually going to see the next three characters in this next piece of the story. We'll begin coming back around to Joseph and Mary, who in this moment we call the urgent seekers. But before we unpack these three characters, I want to have you hear this whole chunk of the story. So let me read to you verses 39 through 52. This is a really good story. It says, when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their town of Nazareth. The boy Jesus, the boy. I just love that Luke is like, he just calls Jesus the boy. I, I don't know why I love that so much. It just speaks to me of relationship. So the boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Now we skip into the future. Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival when he, again, because they were faithfully religious people. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, so they're going and doing the thing that they do every single year for the last 12 years, and they're going home by caravan in this large group of people. After those days were over, they were returning, and the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. Anybody ever lost a kid at the zoo? 
Sorry, I say zoo because that was the moment that marked me. I remember being lost at the zoo. I love you, Mom. It wasn't your fault. Uh, Verse 44, assuming that he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. This is wild because the traveling party was very large. They just assumed, there's all kinds of different reasons why they would have assumed that. They weren't bad parents. Uh, they could not find him, though, in verse 44, when they, or 45, rather. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to, sh- to search for him because they were good parents. After three days, look, they cannot find Jesus for three days. Three days is a really interesting period of time to talk about not being able to find Jesus, but not the point of the sermon. But isn't it interesting that Jesus couldn't be found for three days? Luke is so smart to include this detail that he was gone for three days. Okay, so after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Actually, it was probably more like, son, why have you treated us like this? And Jesus responds back and says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But and this is the first of many times that we're going to see this. They did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them as if he hadn't been for 12 years. Now he's obedient to them. That's not what Luke is saying, but he's saying he was continued to be submitted. What he's saying there is this was not the moment that Jesus stepped out from under the authority of his parents. Okay. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. So, again, The characters that we're looking at in this moment are Joseph and Mary. These are the ones that I'm calling the urgent seekers. Joseph and Mary remind us that even though we know Jesus, there will be moments in our lives when it feels like we have lost him. Can anyone relate to this? In fact, this happens to so many of us so frequently that years and years ago, St. Ignatius of Loyola, he coined this happening, the dark night of the soul. There's been books written about this rhythm that Christians go through. We meet Jesus, and everything's going awesome, and then everything all of a sudden isn't going awesome, and it feels like we don't know where Jesus is anymore. And and Ignatius actually wrote about this process that many, many, many Christians go through, where we go through the dark night of the soul, and the goal of of going through the dark night of the soul is to Go through it so that you come out the other end. And Ignatius wrote that at the end of the dark night of the soul, you emerge into a brand new dawn knowing Jesus all over again. Our modern world has a popular thing that's happening in the church. Uh, the, The term now is the trend of deconstruction. And many people say that deconstructing your faith is the greatest threat to the Christian church in America as young people who have been raised in the church are deconstructing from their faith. Now, I have talked to many young people who have gone through versions of deconstruction, and really what they're doing is they're going through the dark night of the soul. The problem or the danger of deconstruction is not that the person who deconstructs is bad or they've fallen out of love with Jesus. The problem is that we often don't know how to help them walk through that ambiguity and doubt and dark night so that they can emerge on the other side. 
It's almost as if we've emerged on the other side and forgot that we ever went through the dark night. And so when young people go through it, we go, how dare you? Which, by the way, just as an aside, I highly recommend a book by a friend of mine named A.J. Swoboda. The book is called After Doubt. If you are going through some kind of doubt or deconstruction of your own, or parents, if you have children who are going through this, uh, read this book for them and with them. Gift this book to them. Uh, I can help you get a copy of it if you have questions, but After Doubt is an excellent book for exactly this journey. Now, again, Joseph and Mary here are modeling for us a spirituality that is committed to remaining close to Jesus. It's a spirituality that is honest with itself, that says there will be moments where I feel like Jesus and I don't know each other anymore. Now, just for the record, every single time that I've ever felt like I didn't know Jesus, it wasn't that Jesus forgot who I was. And it wasn't Jesus' responsibility to move near me again. It was my responsibility to do the work in the dark night moment, to be like Joseph and Mary, to urgently seek the one that I think that I've lost. And so Joseph and Mary teach us that spiritual formation happens as we search for Jesus when we find that we cannot see him in our lives. So in the places where you feel like you are far from him, the invitation of Luke is to search for him when you feel that you are far from him. And if anything else, if you get nothing else from this entire point, it would be this. When you feel like you are far from Jesus, you are not alone in so many different ways. First of all, we serve the God who says, I will never leave you. So feeling far from God is not the reality of being far from God. And in fact, those of us who are worried that we are far from God are often closer to God than we give ourselves credit for because if you were really far from God and you didn't care, that would be the problem. If your distance from God bothers you, you're probably closer to him than you think that you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't care. Right? Oh, and also, we've all been where you are, so you're definitely not alone. Young people who go through the dark night just need an old person who's been through the dark night to say, hey, I've been there, kid. Keep walking. You'll find him again. I'll hang out with you until you find him. By the way, that's called discipleship. Oh, yes, and sorry, people with gray hair in our church, you just, you just heard what your job description is for 2024. Okay, good. All right. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, it would be a good idea if Jesus gets included in his own story. So let's have our fifth character be the savior of the world, right? So Jesus is the fifth character that, that Luke points us to, and we're calling him the highly aware one. It turns out that he is a part of his own story. And I refer to him here as the highly aware one because he is exactly that. Jesus knew exactly where to be and exactly what to be doing, right? There's this interesting point that can be made about verse 50. Uh, it says, in my father's house, in the translation. Jesus says, I had to be in my father's house. Now, your translation might actually not say in my father's house. Your translation might say that Jesus looked at his parents and said, I had to be about my father's business. And so which one is it? The answer is yes, it's both. I'll tell you why. There's actually a Greek word that Luke uses here that technically can be translated both ways as either house as a physical location or business, a work to be done. And so Luke is actually recording Jesus saying something more like this, I am where my father is and doing what my father would do if he were here. 
So historically speaking, Jesus is 100% correct. For him to say, I had to be in my father's house, if he's talking about a physical location, in the days before Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, the presence of God on earth was behind the veil in the temple. And so for him to say, I'm at my father's house, was 100% correct because he was at the house of his dad, the temple. Now, we know that after Jesus died, the veil was torn from top to bottom, and the presence of God flooded out into the world. And Paul writes to us in the New Testament that at the, as Jesus purchased us with the cost of his blood, that we, the people who believe in God, we've become the temple of God. And so this is why we now say that Jesus dwells with us, because Jesus is still at his father's house. He's just like never left home. And so, so for this 12-year-old kid to go home was to be at the temple. And he goes to the temple every year. And this year, the 12th year, which is significant, and we won't get into why, uh, st study it. Uh, but this year, the 12th year, Jesus decides, I'm staying. And he stays. And so Jesus models for us this aware and obedient spirituality. He is doing what his father would have done, exactly where his father was and would have been if he was the one to have put on the flesh. What was he doing? He was asking good questions to smart people. And they were asking him questions, and he was offering insightful answers, so much so that the teachers were astonished at this kid's wisdom. I mean, keep in mind, he was 12 years old, schooling the teachers. There's a lot to be said about that. But let's move on by saying this, that Jesus teaches us that spiritual formation happens as we are aware of and obedient to the presence and purpose of God in every situation. One of our value statements here at this church is that we are living on purpose. We believe that God has given you a purpose for your life. And we also believe that in every moment you find yourself, that God has a purpose for that moment. And that the invitation of the follower of Jesus is to live on purpose, to be on mission, to be intentional in every moment, to do the thing that God has called and created you to be. And no one models that better than Jesus Christ himself. And this is how our spiritual formation happens, is that we learn from him to be aware of God's purpose in every moment, and then to be obedient to that purpose and do the thing that God would do if he were doing what you are doing right now. This is how spiritual formation happens. And finally, the sixth character in Luke's telling of the story, we have arrived at the last point of the last sermon of the year 2023. The teachers. The ones that I would call the engaged students, the teachers, are the engaged students. These are the religious leaders. It's almost like Luke, at the end of the story, goes, oh yeah, we should probably include the religious leaders in Jesus' story. It's interesting to me that they play such a small role and have very little to say. In fact, none of them are quoted, which then actually emphasizes, doesn't it, that Luke seems to make a point to limit the voice of the religious leaders from the very beginning of the story of Jesus? And, and who does he write as the hero? An ordinary man whose age and career we know nothing about named Simeon. And a woman who's validated as a prophetic voice to the people 
of God offering truth to the people and praise to God. And that everyone around just listened and called her, yet this woman is a prophetess. Luke says, religious leaders, you can play second fiddle to Simeon and Anna, people who don't get any other screen time in the story of Jesus. But they get to be the heroes in the story of the childhood of Christ. Okay, but the teachers actually do have something to teach us here, even in their limited role. And even though it feels a little bit like Luke is sort of just like throwing them a bone, yeah, I guess we can learn something from you as well. Here is what they, we can learn from them, is that they teach us or they model for us a curious spirituality. And as, as Jesus was living on purpose, doing the thing that, that he would do, it, he, he had these people asking questions and listening to the things that he says. This is what it says in verse 46, they were listening to him and asking him questions, both of which are really, 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 really important for your spiritual development. Will you, in 2024, be committed to both listening and asking? Because listening to the words of Jesus instructs us of truth and wisdom, so you don't have like some wonky theology and believe some stuff that just isn't right. But it also reminds us that you're not the source of truth. And neither is, like, anyone on social media or, like, your, the news outlets. Like, just go to the Word. But you have to be a listener to the words of Jesus. But then I love that the teachers actually also show us they didn't just listen and were astonished. They asked questions. Asking questions strengthens relationship. And then it opens the door for deeper learning. It's a wildly Jewish thing to do, by the way, is to ask really good questions. We, we could have a lot to learn from the Jewish culture and custom of asking really, really good questions. And like a good Jewish person, Jesus would answer every question given to him with a question. Right? Like there's the old saying of why would a Jewish person answer a question with a question? And the Jewish teacher would respond, why not answer a question with a question? This is the Jewish custom, and we're actually invited to be students of Jesus asking him questions. I love that we have a teacher that doesn't mind if we raise our hand and interrupt the lecture and say, Jesus, I don't get it. Will you explain something to me? And so Jesus teaches us that spiritual formation, or these teachers rather, teach us that spiritual formation happens as we sit with, listen to, and ask questions of Jesus. So Luke fits a lot into this brief look into Jesus' childhood. He's going to spend the rest of uh, the book talking about the adult life and ministry of Jesus. But from these six characters, we can map out a model for holistic spiritual formation that happens as we are faithfully religious, hopeful, charismatic yet grounded, urgent seekers of God's presence, highly aware of and obedient to God's purpose, and curious students of Jesus' teachings. So now with all of that having been said, we, we go through all of that story. And remember, I asked you to think about something at the beginning of this message, to ask, to think about which of these characters might stand out to you. But, but I want to offer you these three questions. We'll begin with this one as we reflect on what we've heard today. How is your spiritual formation. Is there a place in what you've heard today that felt like, I, I wish I related to that character more? Is there a place in your life where you, where you were hearing me speak and maybe you were beginning to feel a little 
guilt or, or shame. And even though you were wrestling with Romans 8, 1 that says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and you're really not trying to guilt or shame yourself, especially at church, but you were feeling a little bit like maybe you don't quite measure up and I just propose to you that that's the Holy Spirit inviting you into some curiosity about your own spiritual development as you move into a new year. How is your spiritual formation? Are there places where you can grow? Which of the characters did stand out to you? Was it, was it Simeon, the, the ordinary guy of an undisclosed age who was hopeful in all of the waiting? Or Anna, who wasn't afraid to be prophetic and move in power even while she was also deeply grounded? Was it one of the other characters who stood out to you? Which of these points or lessons feels like an invitation to you? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to just take the next moment, and there's somebody sitting near you. Can you just take the next moment and take the first step in applying this sermon to your life? And just as you're sitting right where you're at, take a moment now to tell your neighbor, maybe you would answer a question like this, which character might become an example for you as you move into the new year? So turn to your neighbor just now and just say, just say, oh, it was that one. I mean, you don't even have to remember their name or who they were, but just what was it that stood out for you? Which feels like an invitation or a challenge for you today or this year? Share that with your neighbor, and then after you do, we're going to pray. Good, I'm just going to give you one more moment just so you can kind of finish up your thoughts, sharing with each other, and then we're going to pray together. Would you pray with me as we conclude our year and this gathering? Lord, would you do in us the things that we just voiced to our neighbor? The place where we said we felt challenged or invited or, or that it was difficult for us or we wish we could be more like. Lord, would you do that in us in 2024? God, we believe that you have led us to this day. We believe that you have a purpose for our future. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to and through us in every season. God, would you help us to trust that you will be faithful in the new year. Lord, even as we fast and we pray over the next 21 days, we dedicate ourselves and we dedicate our entire coming year to you. God, speak to us, form us by your Holy Spirit more and more into your image. Make us to be like those characters that we heard about today. And help us, God, to love you 
with all of our lives and to love our neighbor as well. God, would you bless our church and would you use our lives and this community to be a blessing to the world. And now, friends, I offer you a final blessing for the year. May you know the fullness of God's love for you. May you experience his unending grace and his unmatched favor. May the love of God fill your heart, and may it also overflow from your life to those around you. May you be so blessed, and may you be a blessing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.